If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew there for you, you'll find this beginning on page 911 for a verse and a half and then most of it being on 912. We're going through the book of Acts one chapter at a time until we get to the end of July and then beginning a new series in August as we anticipate our annual fundraiser uh, reach for global missions on Labor Day weekend. But here we are today in Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking, that was Peter and John, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, 
the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's where our reading concludes today. So just in case any of you that were not here last week are wondering what the context is of this, Peter and John, two of the very earliest followers of Jesus, were proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the people. And while they were going to the temple, they had seen someone who was crippled and he was over 40 years old. He'd been crippled for a very, very long time. He was asking them only for some money or potentially food. And they said, we don't have that, but what we have, we want to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man who would have been known to many people because he was parked in a place that so many people had to walk by to get to the temple was healed, miraculously healed. And so many people were starting to believe in Jesus because of this that these two men were arrested and therefore the beginning of chapter four. It is amazing just to even think about a little bit that because this man was over 40 years old and here he was uh, outside the temple as they went to worship, I just wonder if Jesus had passed by this man as he had gone into the temple and just ever looked his way and said, you don't know what's coming. Not this year, maybe not in two years, but something's coming. And how many times you might have looked at Peter, even as they walked into the temple together and looked at Peter and said, you have no idea what's coming. Something amazing, something beautiful that God would do through Peter for this man in bringing healing to him. And we see that as a result of it, it says about 5,000 men Believed. So our first point today is believing in God. This resulted in people not fundamentally believing in Peter and John, but believing in God. And then it gives us the number 5,000. There's something interesting that in Acts chapter 2, when that was done, it said about 3,000 believed, and then now it says about 5,000 men believed. And there is here, I think, an allusion to what Jesus had told his followers, that when he was gone and sent the Holy Spirit, they would do greater things than he had done. And here's this illusion, Jesus, the person who was able to feed 3,000 people at one instance, and then he was able to give bread and a meal to 5,000 people, and now here are his disciples, and they're offering the bread of life, and when people partake and consume of the bread of life, they're not fed for a day and able to go back home, but in fact, heaven itself is made their home, and that's greater. And here they are, able to proclaim and offer this bread of life to the world. And as they receive and believe, their needs, are not, their needs are not met for a moment, but they're met for all of eternity. This is a part of the greater things that now God is doing through his followers as they can freely proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But while they were believing God, other people were rejecting God. 
Not everyone was excited about what they were doing, and it lists for us who these people were, the rulers, the elders, the scribes. They were gathered together. It even gives us some names. Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And as they had witnessed the very same thing, they had a very, very different response. And rather than believing in God, they rejected God, which is actually the option for all of us. We can see him as he is, see what he's capable of doing, and we can choose to believe in him, or we can choose to reject him. Here they've chosen to reject him, and we get a little, it should shock us that actually they're the ones who reject him, and it's the other people who believe, because it gives us their pedigree. It was, it was their responsibility to be on the lookout for the Messiah. It was their responsibility to pay attention, and if, if the Messiah came to tell the people, here he is. They had the right pedigree. They had the right education. They would have known uh, the scriptures better than just the common people. And so that looking backwards, we see coming into the kingdom of God is not about where you were born or how much you've been educated or what you know. But the common ordinary person was much quicker to say, I do believe in God. And the person that thought of himself as religious, thought of himself as already in a relationship with God, were actually the very people that rejected God. And some of you here today think, well, I can't believe in God and follow God because I didn't come from the right family and I don't know a whole lot about all this God stuff and I'm just not sure what to do even if I embrace it. And I hope that in reading something like Acts chapter 4, you would see that's just foolish. You're actually able so much easier to just embrace and accept who God is and to start this journey with him than many who think they already know everything. Many who think they already have God in a box and they already know what he's doing and he couldn't possibly be doing something new in these people, Peter and John and especially Jesus. It's so sad. They, they ask him, in what name and by what authority basically did you do this healing? And there's Peter before all these religious people and they've got all the power. He's a prisoner right now. And he has the boldness to say to them, the very name by which this crippled man was healed is the very name by which you must be saved. The very name by which this man was healed is the very name by which you must be saved. Just imagine their eyes rolling. We need to be saved. In terms of status within Judaism, it doesn't get higher than the positions that they had. And it's bold. Whatever, whatever Peter's tone of voice was, I don't imagine that he was necessarily raising his voice at them or yelling them at any way when I say being bold. But you can, be, you can be saying that very, very quietly. You can be an introvert and say, um, um, the, the name that, that that happened by is the, is the name by which you must be saved. And it doesn't get any more bold than that to tell people who think they're already saved that they're not and that they need to be saved and that there's only one name under heaven given among men by which they can be saved. Verse 12, whatever their tone, that's just a bold statement to make. And so it says they perceived that boldness and they were surprised because they were uneducated common men and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. So what they do is they remove Peter and John they have this council together and they ask The worst question possible in verse 16, if you still have your Bible open. These people who are rejecting God, their question is, what shall we do with these men? 
And what Peter and John were trying to do for them was to say, you need to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. Jesus has come. He has been demonstrated to be the chief cornerstone. You have rejected him. But he's been triumphant. And so you need to have a meeting together and consider what you're going to do with Jesus. And they get together and say, what are we going to do with Peter and John? And they just completely miss the boat. And so we see that their motivation is not ultimately an open heart that wants to investigate the evidence and see if it's even possible that Jesus is who he said he is. But they recognize that Jesus is a threat to them. And because they want to keep their own power and their own authority, they don't have an intellectual problem in believing in Jesus. The problem is in their heart. They want to hold on to their perceived power, and so the evidence doesn't matter. So it's not that they can't believe in Jesus, it's that they won't believe in Jesus. And therefore, they, they sidestep that by keeping all their focus on Peter and John and saying, if Peter and John get all these other people to believe, we're already up to 5,000 now. This is just going to get completely out of control, so we're going to threaten them, so they threaten them. You're not allowed to do this. Stop doing it. And Peter and John here again. I don't think their tone is disrespectful, but it's incredibly bold to say to someone who has all the power and authority over you, you can't threaten me enough to stop doing this. You don't have enough power to get me to shut up. I can't stop speaking this. There's no option here of release me and keep me quiet. I'll take the release, but I'm not going to be quiet. How could I not tell this good news? Now that I know what the bread of life is, how could I not offer it to all of these people who need it? So though they rejected God, they couldn't stop Peter and John from speaking. And then what we get this is the end description. One of the reasons they let them go was because a whole group of people were now praising God. Their belief in God was seen in part because of this overflow of joy that resulted in praise in verse 21. When they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people for all were praising God. So this group of people who had believed were now excited. Their their worship was extravagant in the temple, thankful for God, for what it was that he had done. And we see this praise. And it's one of the evidences of our salvation is that it works itself out in our expression of thankfulness and praise to God, that he's, he's worthy of our worship for what he's done. It's, it's only right to respond in praise and thanksgiving for how good he's been to each and every one of us. And then another reason why we praise him, because here the disciples then get together. Peter and John come, and everyone's wondering, what happened to you? What did they do to you in prison? What did they say to you before they released you? So they get together, and they have a prayer meeting. That prayer meeting is another way of praising God, and so they praise God in prayer when they say, In verse 24, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. And then they quote this Old Testament passage and then they say, in this city were gathered Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're they're praising God for an amazing truth that whether people believe in God or reject God, God will accomplish his purposes through all of them. That's what they mean when they say, 
you're the sovereign Lord. And you do present yourself to people and they can believe you or not believe you, but nobody has the option of dethroning you. Nobody can knock you off of your seat of authority. Nobody can undo ultimately the plans that you have in place. So he lists them. Here are these people. The the, the Pharisees and the scribes that were in front of Peter and John, they had the most religious power in Jerusalem. But Herod and Pontius Pilate, they had political power and authority. They could command soldiers into battle. And he lists their names and all of their sins and they're disobedient. And he says, for all the people that believed in you and all the people that rejected you, God, you somehow had this planned out that what you wanted to happen still happened. And you are not limited even by the disobedience of rulers and authorities and powers. And so that goes to the issue of trusting in God. There's believing in God for your own salvation. There's praising him as a thankfulness for that. And then there's getting to the place where you trust in God. Where when you look out in the world and you see all kinds of reasons to just think this world is random and things don't make sense to say, Yes, there is a bit of that randomness and there's a bit of that chaos because all of us at every moment of the day have opportunities to choose to do what's good or to do what's right or not. And yet somehow in all of that, this world is still moving forward. There's still a sense of some progress being made. It was so commonplace 50 years ago even that if you were a couple trying to have kids that you would expect that some of your kids would not make it out of childhood. And medicine is advancing where that is more the exception than the rule. And that's a wonderful and beautiful thing. That we're learning from things and we're able to apply things and now there are certain conditions that if you develop them, you would have, a doctor just would have said to you, I, I, there's nothing we can do for you. And now they can say, well, here's something we're trying and we're trying. And all along the way, that becomes the accumulation of information that makes life in this world better for people in this world. And at some times, we just have to marvel at that, that the world is not worse than it is. <laughs> and, and here they are. They're, they're praising him in prayer and saying, that can only be explained because you're sovereign and you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, and you somehow have a plan that is unfolding. And so God, because we trust in that, and trust that you are in control over everything, we are asking you now to help us follow you. They threatened us, and they still have power, and that's part of your plan because they're in power, and they can do things to us. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to stop proclaiming your message. We want to fully and completely follow you, and so that's the last thing we see is this prayer for ongoing boldness to speak the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit to follow him. And then we get this description of what following him looks like in verses 32 and 37. And we have not only what their message is, but how that message plays itself out and how they interact with one another. As I believe it was Jared Wilson who said it, the message of grace can attract people, but only a culture of grace can keep people. The message of grace can, can attract people and they'll listen to it, but only a culture of grace will actually keep people coming. And here we see this culture of grace developed among them, And so matched with their boldness to proclaim the message is this boldness that works itself out in compassion and care and grace for one another. And that's actually the description that's given of them in verse 33. 
Great power of the apostles was given to them uh, to the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And then we say, what does that mean? Great grace was upon them all. It says it in the next verse. There was not a person needy among them. This love that they had for God and this thankfulness that they had for him had worked itself out now in this love that they had for one another, that they took care of each other's needs so that it could be said there was not a need among them. And the God that we follow does not ask us to make a choice between loving him or loving people. He says, one of the ways in which you love me and show your thankfulness to me is by loving other people. And so it should be that the closer you get to God, the more loving you become for other people. And if you're on some spiritual journey where you say you're getting closer and closer to him and you're learning more about him than you ever know and you have less friends than you ever have in your life and you're a jerk to your siblings and your coworkers, the Bible says, I don't... I don't really know what you're doing, and I don't know which God you're following. But when you follow and love the Lord to God with all your heart and soul and your mind, he tells you to then love your neighbor as yourself and to become better and better at loving people, a better friend to people, a better sibling to people, a better child or a better parent from this perspective of loving them. It says they were all of one heart, one soul, and one mind. They had everything in common. And the people who had lands and houses started to sell them so that the needs could be distributed. I just thank God that chapter four follows chapter three because it'd be so easy in chapter three to then when you see Peter and John do this amazing miracle to say, okay, this is the strategy. This is the plan for the church. God has given these special people this amazing power and now they're just gonna go out and exercise that power. Well, when we get to verse 32, it doesn't say, okay, so when they got there, everyone got together and said, okay, Peter and John, here's how we're going to deal with the needs of people. You just go around and heal them. You just go around and declare that they're rich. I mean, you did it. Everyone saw it. The guy was 40 years old. He had no hope. You did something spontaneous. It was amazing. So let's keep doing that. So why would they sell their excess properties to just create a fund so that they could provide for the needs of people? Well, because God delights when we obey him spontaneously and when our obedience is sustained. He can heal a lame man and help him walk, and he can heal a greedy man and make him generous. God can heal all of us from all of our diseases. We might only look at the crippled man in the way of the temple and say, that man needs healing, But the apostles are looking at somebody that has three pieces of property in Jerusalem when he really lives in Alexandria because he just wants to have a comfortable place when he comes to Jerusalem for temple. And he says, I think you could get rid of one of these. And your life would still be pretty comfortable. So let me heal you. Sell it. Give it away. But there's not the impression that any of these people sold everything they had such that they were now dependent on the common pot. What you get the impression is that some fairly wealthy people have now converted to Jesus and they have houses and they have lands and they're realizing that some of that can be liquidated for the benefit of other people. But they still have a place to live when this is done. They still have a home to go to when this is all said and done. They're not just living in cots somewhere. So the, and also as we get further, and then and thank God there's Acts chapter 5 through 28 as we go, we don't actually see this same phenomena replicated in Damascus, in Thessalonica, in Athens, or in Rome. You see the same community develop, 
But what is unique to Jerusalem is part of what Peter was alluding to when he said, you've rejected the chief, uh, you've rejected the stone that's now become the chief cornerstone. Everyone in Jerusalem still remembers the judgment that Jesus had pronounced in the temple. And Jesus gave everyone in Jerusalem about a 30-year notice that this is not a good investment. And if you've been buying up property in Jerusalem because you're waiting for Rome to fall so that you can now have your palace in Jerusalem, Jesus told all of them, no, 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 this is a bad investment. 30 years from now, no stone will be left on another. And so one of the practical applications of that is if my Savior just told me that 30 years from now, Rome is going to take all of this away. And he's telling me that I can use it to invest in something that no one can take away. Wow. He makes a lot of economic sense. What a good idea. This is about to, every land that every Jew owns in 30 years is going to be taken from them. Jesus warned them about it. He said, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. You're going to to flee to the hillside. There's going to be two people in a field and one's going to go and the other one's not. And he's giving them advanced notice. That judgment was not a judgment pronounced in Thessalonica, in Rome, in Philippi. And so there is something specific to this time and place about the excess that was here in Jerusalem. But what is true in every church is that they are to be generous to one another, that they're to provide for the needs of one another. And later, actually, one of Paul's tasks is to get the other churches to be generous, not only to take care of themselves, so that, but that he could go back to Jerusalem and help take care of people in Jerusalem. So the culture of generosity is still there, and that's a part of following Jesus. Following Jesus, believing that he's sovereign, that he owns it all. So the the primary conviction that you have to have to first think that we have everything in common is that everything belongs to God. It's not just that we agree together that we're going to share everything. It's that we agree together that God is sovereign, and everything we have ultimately came from him. And so if part of what he gave me was so that it could come through me to you or vice versa, we can share that in common only if we have that common conviction that God is sovereign and that everything that is ours is really his and therefore everything that is mine is really ours. And then this culture that if you would look out on this and you would say, wow, if you belong to that group, I still haven't found a needy person among them. How did, why do they love each other like that? Why do they care for each other like that? Why do they follow God like that? It's a culture that ultimately attracts people and wants to keep them there because when they come in and they feel this kind of love that exists in this community, they're amazed by it. And so many times we want to feel like we have to pick between these two things. Can God just spontaneously heal someone? Can he just spontaneously help some? Does he want us as followers to sometimes have no plan, no strategy, just act in obedience? Yes, he does. But does he also want us to develop systems? Does he also want us to sustain our faithfulness over a long period of time so that we can be good stewards of the resources that we have? He absolutely does. And he doesn't want you to ever use your spontaneity to undermine the fact that you should still be disciplined. And he doesn't want us to be so disciplined and structured that we lose heart that in the moment when we see someone in need and we have what they need, that we would be unwilling to act. We say, oh, let me give you a number of this place where you can go and they can help you because we've set that thing up like three months ago. 
He said, no, 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 this is an opportunity for you. I want to do something through you for this person. And then I want to do something through all of you for this person. And this believing in God that leads to praise, that leads to trust, that ultimately leads to this kind of generous community is exactly what we need in following him. That as we follow him, as the quote says in the back of your handout, that there would be a gracious boldness in the spirit that gives us both courage and compassion. Courage to speak the truth and compassion to take care of the needs that we see among us and to apply the truth to our lives in our own hearts and minds for the good of ourselves and the good of others, ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your spirit and all that you did in amazing and miraculous ways through your servants. We thank you that you've entrusted us with the message of the bread of life. We pray that you'd give us an an excitement and a joy about the opportunity we have to share something that is so much better and greater than what this world has to offer. And as we do that, we pray that our boldness and our courage would also be marked with compassion and care for other people, that we would truly love them as, as you love them. And Father, we pray that you would help us to translate uh, this passage, these truths into our context in our day. Help us to have a culture of grace. Help us to have a culture of generosity that is excited to partner with you who owns everything in taking care of all those whom you love and whom you gave your son to die for. Father, to do any of these things, we need your strength, and so it's only by the power of your spirit that we have any hope of applying this. And so we pray like it was true of them, may it be true of us. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.